is up, everybody? Welcome to the Hot Shot Wake Up. This is your weekly wildfire update. We'll cover the news, what's been going on, and everything operationally that's happening in the United States. There's a lot going on over in Canada. Brazil has been having some fires. Russia has some new fires. And Alaska is probably one of the busiest places right now when it comes to wildfire. They have been very, very active this last week. Some of the other stuff we'll cover in the show today, there was history made by the Forest Service just a couple days ago. We'll cover that. has to do with long-lining folks into some wilderness fires. And we'll also cover the new wildfire commission that we talked about all the way back in March when this thing was behind schedule for getting put together. But they hired dozens of people to be a part of this commission from all sorts of different agencies, different governmental bodies, the private and state sector. One of the surprising additions is that the Department of Homeland Security is now involved in this wildfire commission, and we will cover all of that later on. But we got to get down to business with what's going on around the nation. Right now, nationally, we are at a preparedness level two. No surprise there if you've been listening. It's just been kind of hanging out there for a while. Some overarching numbers. This year, there has been 35,000 64 wildfires, and a total acreage so far of 4.65 million acres burned. Now, Alaska has contributed to a lot of that, and you can't just throw that away and say, oh my gosh, it's these record-setting years. You have to understand the vast size of Alaska, and when Alaska decides to burn, that's when we see these large numbers start to accumulate. This is above average over the last 10 years, but if you start to zoom out to 100 years, 120 years, you will see seasons where there have been amounts of acreage like this burning before. But if you are to zoom in on the 10-year average, this is higher than normal. Over the last 24 hours, there are seven new large fires And those are in Alaska, Louisiana, and Texas. Believe it or not, Texas is still burning under the radar. Louisiana popped a large fire as well. There's currently 12 uncontained large fires burning. And 67 fires are being managed for fire use and resource benefit. If you don't know what that means, it's fire management teams that take a look at the location of the fire the fire activity being exhibited on the incident, and they make the decision to not suppress the fire, but let it burn and set some trigger points if the thing does decide to get up and run, and they call those managed fires. That number has been increasing steadily over the last month and more. But right now, 67 fires are being managed. Up in the big state of Alaska, it is a PL5. That's the highest level you can get. Over the last 24, 48 hours, there has been significant growth on many fires and on some other fires. They have seen a little bit of precipitation and fire activity dying down a little bit. But Alaska 
is very, very busy, and there are some high-value infrastructure sites that are at risk as well. We'll start with the Clear Fire. That's near Anderson, Alaska. It's being managed by Northwest Team 10. That fire is currently 61,589 acres, and it is ripping through a black spruce forest. They are calling it 8% contained, but a day or two ago, it did jump their dozer line. Crews pulled back to the safety zone, and I posted some footage of this, and it is extreme, extreme fire behavior. All the crews were fine. Everybody up there knew where they were supposed to go, it seems, and they just orderly backed out, and their safety zone looked baller. This thing was huge. After it jumped the dozer line, new evacuations were put into place. There's some subdivisions out there, small communities. These places were evacuated as this fire continues to push north. Now, in the opposite direction, there is a Space Force facility on the other side of this fire, and they have a large military and governmental fire contingency that is prepping for any sort of wind switch. And if that happens, this Space Force facility up near Anderson, Alaska, will be at risk. We had talked about this before. There's a large satellite array system up there. And who knows, maybe we are launching all sorts of undisclosed aerial technologies from Anderson, Alaska, out of this Space Force facility, and all of you down in San Diego last week that claimed you saw UFOs flying over the bay, perhaps that's just Space Force coming down for a quick coastal flight from Anderson, Alaska. Right now, the Clear Fire has 487 people on it, and the current cost is $7.4 million. Also up north, there is the Minto Lakes Fire. That is 34,386 acres, and that is being run by California Team 1. Mostly, it's burning in an old burden scar from 2011. If I remember correctly, it was the Hastings Fire, but I could have that wrong because I'm pulling that from memory, but I believe that is the fire scar it's burning in. That fire activity has slowed a little bit. Majority of the activity is backing fire. There are residents that are threatened by this incident. And crews continue to prep and hold what they have. And that is a total of 297 people doing that work. That fire is 0% contained. The total cost as of yesterday was $3.4 million on the Minto Lakes fire. The Lime Complex, which is the largest one up there right now, on last week's update, I said you could probably see this thing hit 800,000 to a million acres in about a month. And as of yesterday, it was 785,539 acres. This fire is two Calf Canyons plus a little. They're saying there's 14 fires in this complex. It's being managed by the Alaska Green Team. This is one of the incidents that received some light rain. It slowed the fire's progression substantially. However, that fire is still 0% contained. There's 185 people on it. And that one is sitting at $8.4 million in cost. 
A new incident up in Alaska that's getting some attention is the Middle Tanana Complex. Quickly, this turned into a Type 2 incident. It's the Northern Rockies Team 3 that is managing this fire. There wasn't a ton of information out on this yet, but it is very active. They were saying they are getting crown runs, very active fire around the flanks and at the head of the fire. They're getting people in place and they are starting to build line and develop plans to kind of wrangle this thing in a little bit. Before we move on to the rest of the United States, we'll touch on the Yukon and the Northwest Territories in Canada. Those have been burning very, very active. Hundreds of thousands of acres have burned in the last week or so. The Yukon is showing similar activity on a daily basis to what we saw on the clear fire and all the footage that I post on that. And it is these black spruce forests and these tightly condensed timber forests with all of that moss and uh, witch's broom type material hanging off of it that is quickly spreading and spotting out in front of itself. Alberta sent some folks over to the Yukon to help battle those fires, and Canada as well is very, very busy. Northern California is next up on the list. They are at a preparedness level two. I wouldn't be surprised to see that bump up here in maybe a week. Depends on the new starts. But in just the last 24 hours, there were 24 new fires. So one new fire every hour in Northern California yesterday. Most notably is the Electra fire. This thing ripped super fast when it first started. A massive, massive air show ensued. There was Tanker 10 came in, dumping a bunch of retardant on it. All sorts of helicopters and a big aerial show. The surprising thing that a lot of locals were telling me is that how... They were surprised at how active it was burning through the evening. So, started in late afternoon, blew up 4,100 acres, and then the fire activity at night caught a lot of people off guard. It just kept kind of chunking through that grass. There was a burn operation done a day ago, and that kind of buttoned up one side of the fire. They are calling it 40% contained. And right now there are 1,864 people on this 4,000-acre fire. The current cost is $2.3 million, but that will skyrocket in the next couple days. And the total breakdown is there's 52 crews on this fire, 161 engines, and 14 helicopters on the Electra fire. The other fire that they are talking about in Northern California is the Rice's Fire. This thing's pretty much wrapped up. It went 904 acres. They quickly got on it with all sorts of folks and put the squash on it as fast as they could. They are saying they did lose 13 structures on this fire. There's still 102 people on this incident, and that total cost is $16.7 million. The Southwest is still reporting some fires. That has bumped down to a preparedness level. Two, not a whole lot of significantly new fires. I believe there's one or two new fires in the last 24 hours. But still at the top of their list is Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak. I'm just noting this because the current cost of those fires is nearing $300 million. And they're still sitting on 472 people on that incident. Texas continues to burn down in the southern area. 
Texas alone had 38 new fires in the last 24 hours, most prominently the Kuntz Fire. That's 3,000 acres, 0% contained, and that's near Iowa Park, Texas. Private land is where it started. It's ripping through brush and grass, and they're trying to get a hold on that. And there's a couple other fires down in that region that are 1,000-plus acres that they are wrapping up. Can't forget the Great Basin. They are at a PL2. They are getting a lot of small initial attack fires, but they are still catching them fairly small. There were 12 new fires in the last 24 hours. Idaho is getting numerous IAs. Top of their list is the Go Shoot fire. That topped out at 2,000 acres. There's 175 people on it. This is the fire near Wendover. That fire is getting wrapped up, and they are saying it has cost so far 2.8 million dollars. Lastly, can't forget the Northwest, Washington, Oregon. They have started to see some new fires. 15 new fires in the last 24 hours. Mostly some smaller IAs in Central Oregon. Uh, there was the Byron Hill fire that went 1,800 acres. They threw a bunch of people on it, and they're getting that wrapped up. But the locals up there are saying they are starting to see numerous new starts in their region. And they're telling me that this is indicative of their fire season getting started and should be fairly busy if this continues. That's the operational update. Next up, we're going to talk about the long line mission to shuttle some folks in. If you don't know, this is where you just attach yourself to the belly of a helicopter and fly in. First ever in Forest Service history. We'll cover those details and the new fire commission. But first, thanks to all of the Substack subscribers. All of the paid Substack subscribers, just $6 is what makes all of this possible. All of our donations to firefighters and their families possible. And it couldn't happen without those subscribers so we really appreciate that. If you want to take part in that, just go to the Hotshot Wake Up at substack.com. Click on the subscribe button. Like I said, just $6 supports everything that we do. If you can't do that, just leave a five-star rating on Spotify. Leave a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Like the show on Substack. Share it with your friends and family. And we appreciate that as well. That covers the operational update. We'll move on to the news. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. There was history made this week by the San Juan National Forest. On July 2nd, the forest approved the first short-haul operation on U.S. Forest Service ground. Now, if you don't know what this is, usually and typically, when we bring people in by helicopter, you load the personnel inside the helicopter, you find yourself a place to land, somewhere that's cleared out or a ridge line that works well, you make yourself a helispot and you land the helicopter and people jump out. Most of the gear is 
loaded internally and then unloaded once you hit the ground. And you may get some cargo nets slung in so you have everything with you that you need once you're dropped off. A short haul, which is what happened here this last week, is when you clip in to the long line that's on the belly of the helicopter, and then they hoist you up and drop you in through the timber and the trees, and you unclip and get to work. Now, the San Juan National Forest put out a statement on this, and I'm glad they did because this was a, a very big deal. Their press release says this, Today, July 2nd, firefighters on a small lightning-caused fire on the San Juan National Forest made history. This was the first approved firefighting short-haul operation on U.S. Forest Service lands. It was carried out by Mesa Verde National Park's Helitac crew. Shout out, Mesa Verde National Park's Helitac. History books, I'm telling you. This is big deal stuff. The press release continues saying the short hauling is when a helicopter carries personnel and their gear at the end of a fixed line that hangs underneath the helicopter belly. In the industry, we know this as a long line. This technique is best used in remote, densely vegetated areas where a helicopter cannot land, such as rugged or heavily forested terrain. While short haul operations have been used in medical evacuations for years, They were only just approved for wildfire operations on Forest Service lands in 2021. So if you didn't know, last year the Forest Service said, okay, we'll give this a shot. We will allow people in certain conditions to clip in to the long line on the belly of a helicopter and we will drop you through the forest canopy into the fire. Continuing, this morning... Forest management deemed short haul the best tool for the job when assessing a remote tenth of an acre fire burning in the La Plata Mountains. The Max fire was not near roads or near desirable landing zones for the helicopter, making short haul the best operational candidate. I'm so glad they kept this in their back pocket. It says the fire crew was inserted and quickly contained the Max fire, which then received precipitation from thunderstorms. The firefighters were extracted using the same method, and they are now prepared for the next potential lightning start. Thanks to the Mesa Verde National Park and your Helitac crew for your work. Now, like we said, this was history in the making. I'm curious who is the next forest or management team to allow this thing to happen, but it's great to see that the first one that was done a year after it was approved was a success. And it worked the way it was supposed to. Now, after I read this, it reminded me of an incident that took place all the way back in 2012 on the Pole Creek Fire on the Deschutes National Forest in Oregon. Now, did they short haul someone into a fire back in 2012? No, they did not. But they did pull someone out in a Bambi bucket. If you don't know what that is, when you see helicopters flying with the line attached underneath their belly and there is a bucket attached, that is filled with water and an individual on the Pole Creek Fire got into a tight situation. The helicopter saw them. They flew over and this individual jumped in the bucket and was pulled off the fire. I know when it's a slow day or maybe not a slow day on the fire line, 
a lot of people talk about these kinds of operations and, hey, if you were in trouble, would you clip in or would you jump into a bucket? Well, this person actually did. A safe comm was filed on the fire after this happened, I'm sure. Once the bucket hit the ground and the people on the ground saw someone climb out of the bucket, they said, whoa, 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 we should probably document this. So I dug up the archives back to 2012, pulled up the safe comm, and they said this is what happened on the Pole Creek fire. They said that the Bell 205A1 was dropping water to slow down the spread of the fire under the direction of a ground contact working in the area. The pilot was in contact with this individual, both visually and through radio communication on air to ground. Initially, the individual on the ground said they had a safety zone. They were going to just keep one foot in the black. They were good to go. And there wasn't a bunch of activity at the time. It had slowed down and there was only a little bit of group torching happening on this fire. But then, as happens during the witching hour, the fire picked up in activity and kind of reburned. It was ripping through fuels that it had had an understory burn through. All the fuels above were pre-treated, the wind switched, and this thing started ripping. The individual on the ground kind of made a move and said, hey, I got to get out of here. And the pilot was kind of visually giving them updates saying, hey, this is where the fire is. This is where you are. This is where I think you should move. And the pilot had this to say in the report. I asked the ground contact where he was and was surprised to find that he was still to the west of the torching area. This surprised me since I thought he had already passed the fire to the east, where I felt he should be. I immediately contacted him and circled back to look for him. He gave me a mirror flash. Okay, so now everybody out there who's like, strobes, strobes, you gotta have, you gotta have these strobe lights. Mirror flash. Dude, found him with a mirror flash. I'm gonna get a lot of shit for that because people love these strobe lights now, but you should always have a mirror on you, in my opinion, just in case. So the pilot picked up the mirror flash and said that he was within 500 feet of the head of the fire, and it was coming down on him quickly. Uh, this torching in the black column being generated was hidden from him by the smoke he was in, so the individual on the ground couldn't see the head of the fire that was only 500 feet away from him. Uh, he was totally surrounded by standing timber. Spots started igniting around this individual, and the pilot started notifying him, hey, you have spots around you as well as the head of the fire that's pushing. The pilot said he urged the individual to start moving quickly north away from the fire. He did this, and when I circled back again, he was 50% closer to his position. The fire was moving in waves of heat towards his position. The air between them was actually shimmering, the pilot says. A 200 to 300 yard wide wall of trees would instantly ignite, and this in turn was ignited the next row of trees in front of it. My ground contact was centered in the middle of this wall of fire, with fingers pushing on either side of him. I felt the individual was in great danger. The fire started moving much faster than this individual was able to. There was no way out to the southeast or to the northwest because he was in the center of the crescent between these two fingers. So this thing had fingered out. He was in the middle of this horseshoe and it was closing down on him. The fire was moving so quickly and it was beginning to even affect the finger's behavior, which started to burn more intense, intensely. I was very, very concerned that he was in the center of all of this. 
I tried to relay this concern over the radio, but he kept saying he was secure. I knew that the black was not going to be a good safety zone or the help that he needed. I felt that he was going to need to deploy his fire shelter and I was going to do some water drops on his location. The pilot says that he started to pull away to get water but realized that the fire would have been upon him before I was able to make a trip to the lake and back. And this was a five minute turnaround is what the pilot said. So he's saying this guy had less than five minutes before the fire was going to run him over. The pilot continued saying that to the north of his location, there was a small opening in the trees, and I was able to determine that I could hover into it without damaging my helicopter. I lowered the helicopter until the bucket was on the ground. I hovered and watched the speed which he was moving and the speed of the fire that was coming towards us. The fire was moving very quickly, so I strongly suggested that he climb into my bucket so that I would be able to haul him out. I felt that there was very few options and vigorously urged him to just climb in. I honestly felt that we had only seconds or a minute before the fire was to our location. I'm sure that he could feel the heat at this point in time because I could feel the heat in the helicopter. The individual climbed into the bucket and wrapped his arms around the wires as I slowly lifted the bucket vertical. We were in radio contact during this whole operation. Once I was sure that he was secure in the bucket, I flew north perhaps a quarter mile to an open area where I felt he could walk to safety. I carefully lowered the bucket to the ground and he got out and walked down the trail. Looking back as I gained elevation, I saw that the location where I had picked him up was fully torched and engulfed in fire. I do not believe there was any other good options. The ground he was on was just a carpet of dead, bug-killed trees, and the fire was very intense. I'm not even sure a fire shelter deployment would have saved him. I'm glad the individual had the courage to climb into my bucket, and I'm relieved that no harm had come to this individual. So when I read that the San Juan National Forest did the first ever short-haul drop-off into a fire. I had these images of the long line and a bucket attached, and I said, I remember there was a guy who jumped into a bucket years ago. My question to you, would you jump into a bucket if you needed to? Would you hesitate to jump in that bucket? Another question I have is, would you short-haul yourself into a fire? If you were on a fire, let's say you had a small mod of folks, maybe not an entire crew, and they said, hey, we can't really find any landing zones. It would take forever to buff out a hella spot. How about you just clip into the long line and we'll drop you off? Is that something you would be willing to do? I'm curious. I would. I'd clip in for sure. When it comes to the bucket, I would definitely jump into a bucket. If I needed to, I would jump in, of course. You just hope that the pilot doesn't open the bucket or accidentally punch the release button and the bucket drops out, but I'm sure the pilot would take his hands off those controls, but you got to imagine the pilot would be nervous as well. I found that to be a very, very interesting story. Are we going to see more of this? Are there going to be more short hauls into fires? especially these smaller IAs, these single trees, these quarter acres, tenth of an acre lightning fires, where, yeah, you could hike someone in with a saw and then take four hours to cut out a landing zone. 
or do we just clip in and start dropping people off? I'd love to hear what you got to say about that. Do you know the folks who did this? What do they got to say? And do you think this is an operation that should continue? All in all, it would be a rush to clip in underneath a helicopter and get dropped off inside of a fire, but definitely something that needed to be covered because this is literally Forest Service history in the making. I have traveled this year over all the United States, through the Alleghenies, the White Mountains, and the Catskills, the Rockies and the Bitterroot Mountains, Cascades, the Coast Range, and the Sierras. This week, they finally announced who is going to be on the newly formed Wildland Fire Commission. All the way back in March, we did a podcast episode on this, talking about this commission, about how it was taking so long. They had original members that had left the commission all of the sudden, and there wasn't a lot of reasons why these folks had left. But they are now saying, and by they, I mean the federal government, are saying they now have 47 people on this new Wildland Fire Commission. Now, before we get into who was hired on this commission, who's taking part in it, what departments are in it, like I said earlier, surprisingly, the Department of Homeland Security is a part of this. FEMA has taken a main role in this. Tom Vilsack, the head of the United States Department of Agriculture, is taking a lead role. But first, we should go over what their responsibilities are. Now, Wildfire Today covered some of this, and the Forest Service and others put out press releases on this announcement and the hirings. And what this new Wildland Fire Commission is tasked with doing are as follows. Mainly... They have been told to develop recommendations to mitigate and manage wildland fires. Pretty broad, pretty basic, I guess. There's a timeline for this. They're told that by February 13th of 2023, they are to develop a report describing recommendations to prevent, mitigate, suppress, and manage wildland fires consider protection of human life, short- and long-term forest management goals, wildland-urban interface issues, utility corridors, so these big power line uh, thoroughfares. They're supposed to develop reports on how to rehab fires, so after the fire is done burning. They are to streamline environmental reviews, and provide recommendations for modernizing and expanding the use of technology, including satellite technology, remote sensing, drone systems, and any other type of emerging technology to prevent, mitigate, suppress, and manage wildland fires. What I think will be very interesting over the next couple months is do they just copy and paste the UN Global Fire Policy as their report? Because the UN Global Wildfire Policy Papers cover all of these things as well. Another thing that they are set to report within a year's time is 
basically an inventory of all aerial wildland firefighting equipment, strategies, and take inventory of what the government has for wildland fire suppression. Now, this date has passed, but they were tasked. This was, again, this was a part of the infrastructure bill that was passed back in uh, October of last year. And some of these dates have already passed. The next goal was to, by March 30th of 2022, which is long gone, they were to prepare an inventory of surplus cargo and passenger aircraft that may be used for wildland firefighting purposes. So they're supposed to take an inventory of all aircraft across the nation and say, can we utilize these aircraft for suppression use? By June 28th, which has already passed, they were to develop an assessment of the number of aircraft needed to fight wildland fires through 2030, so eight years. This report should include an assessment of federal government's authorities to provide or sell surplus aircraft to federal, state, or local organizations to be used for wildland firefighting, identify any additional authorities that are needed, and the commission is directed to consider all private and public sector options for accessing necessary aircraft, aircraft parts, including procurement, contracting, retrofitting, and public-private partnerships. Now, I'm sure after Coulson helicopters read this part, they started doing backflips. Basically saying, hey, is there aircraft from the military or the private sector that can be used for wildfire suppression? And I believe this is where a lot of the drone aircraft are going to now start coming in. They're going to take old drones that the military used, put a bunch of sensors and different equipment on them, and start using them on fires. Now, when it comes to who can and cannot be on this commission, basically the only rule was you have to have at least one firefighter on the commission. Seems kind of silly. I think this is why a lot of people left in the beginning stages of making this commission. Some people felt there wasn't enough representation of boots on the ground. And for that one firefighter, and the the boots-on-the-ground experience, they chose Kelly Martin, who was the former chief of fire and aviation at Yosemite National Park, and currently Kelly runs Grassroots uh, for Wildland Firefighters, and she resides as the president of that organization. The announcement went on to say that presumably there may be other people on this committee that have had boots-on-the-ground experience, but just off the top, out of 47 individuals, only one stands out as boots-on-the-ground experience. Um, Kelly Martin isn't currently still operational, but has been asked to join this committee. They're saying that there was 500 applications for these 47 positions, And in total, 36 non-federal members, 18 primary and 18 alternatives have been selected. So there's 18 people who applied that weren't put on the committee but have been tossed into a hopper. And if people leave or people fall out, they're going to pull from this. Interestingly enough, all of these private sector people makes me raise an eyebrow, especially when it comes to all of the 
NGOs or non-governmental organizations that are pushing this UN or United Nations global wildfire policy paper that I'm curious to see if they toss that into all of this. There's 11 federal members. Uh, The co-chair is the Department of Agriculture and the Department of the Interior and FEMA or the Department of Homeland Security. They get the co-chair positions and we'll go through the main folks who are a part of this all. So the main federal co-chairs, like I said earlier, is Secretary Tom Vilsack. He's the Department of Agriculture head. He's taken a lot of heat lately for some other things that he's been doing, but they have made him a co-chair of the Wildfire Commission. The Department of Homeland Security and FEMA have appointed Deanne Criswell, and the Department of the Interior has nominated the current secretary, Deb Holland. H-A-A-L-A-N-D. She has been a very public face of the Department of the Interior. Folks in the BLM or the Bureau of Land Management have given me their opinions on her current job performance. And if we are to base it off of how her employees feel about her current performance, you hope that some of these opinions change with her work on the Wildfire Commission. Uh, The Bureau of Indian Affairs has a federal member on. She's the deputy director, and that's Joanna Blackhair. The Bureau of Land Management also nominated Mike Ned. He's the deputy director of operations. Uh, The EPA got a chair in here, and that's Erica Sasser, and she's the director of health and environmental impacts. And I'm sure there's going to be a lot of talk about air quality and global climate change coming out of that. Uh, FEMA has multiple chairs, uh, Anna Montero and Angela Gladwell. National Park Service has Jennifer Flynn. U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has Cynthia Martinez. The U.S. Forest Service nominated the Deputy Chief of State and Private Forestry, Jayla Hill. National Institute of Standards and Technology nominated Joni Chin. Uh, For non-federal members, state hazard mitigation is Kathy Holder. She's from Utah. Uh, Sonia German, Elizabeth King, Lucinda Andrea is the county government representative out of Arizona. Kathleen McIntyre coming out of California. Madeline McDonald coming out of the public utilities industry. Uh, Michelle Steinberg is coming out of Massachusetts for property development and industry. Uh, Kelly Martin from Grassroots for Wildland Firefighters, residing out of Idaho. Jessica Morris is coming out of the Forest and Wildland Resilience Agency in California. And Anne Bartuska, who is a PhD senior advisor for Washington, D.C., for the future of federal resources, has also been put on this board. For prescribed fire input, they have John Weir and Craig Thomas, one from Oklahoma State and one from California to head all of that, and others, mostly from California and a couple from Colorado. Now, as you may have noticed, this is a very female-heavy commission, so I'm curious, maybe there just weren't a lot of men who applied for this. But it seems as though the majority of these 47 
are very intelligent women, some with fire experience, being Kelly Martin, and it looks like the majority of them do not have boots on the ground fire experience, and they are running the Wildland Fire Commission, which is in charge of making wildland fire policy through 2030. Now, I know that was a lot of names. That was a lot of information. I'm sorry for putting you through that. But this commission is going to decide how you actively fight fire in the next decade. As we've covered before, the United Nations has this policy paper on global wildfire policy that they want all member nations to adhere to and adopt. And it'll be very interesting to see, is this panel going to just create a carbon copy of this policy and say, hey, you know what? This is the best option for us. This is the way we're going to go. What I think is most interesting coming out of this commission is all of this aviation inventory and retrofitting that will be done. As I said earlier, I think there's going to be a lot of drones coming out of the military that will be retrofitted for our industry. There's a lot of fixed wing aircraft that uh, probably need to be repurposed that will end up making their way into our industry as well. Now, knowing this isn't the most exciting news, it is very important news because ultimately what is going to be decided or the reports coming out of this commission will then be presented to the federal government and the agencies will either adopt or won't adopt the new policy. But seeing that the majority of these people are direct, directly related to or know folks in the positions of power from these agencies... I can say 99% that whatever they come up with and present will be adopted and will be put into practice in the wildfire world. So any briefs that come out of this, any updates that come out of this, where we get any sort of hint of the direction that this is all going, I'll be sure to report on that and pass along that information that ultimately will become gospel in the wildfire world. Big, big news. Might not be the flashiest news, but it is going to decide the direction everyone goes, at least for the next decade. Hey, that does it for our show today. Remember, if you want to support the show, all of the content we put out on the social media, Instagram, Twitter, our Substack articles and the podcasts. Every Wednesday, we have a Substack-only podcast for our paid subscribers, like I said, just $6 if you want to support the firefighter donations, donations to families in need in our industry, and support the content that we put out. Just go to the Hotshot Wake Up at Substack, click on the subscribe button, just $6, and that will support everything we do. Hey, whether you're in the fire world or not, remember, you should check in on your friends, your homies, see how they're doing, stretch, hydrate, the quality calories count. I know some of you are sitting right now, so if you're in Region 1 or one of the crews in SoCal that's sitting, there's a lot of helicopter crew members that have reached out to me from California saying that they're staging out-of-state resources in your region, and you've been sitting for six weeks, so I'm sorry that's happening. That That's a shitty deal. But remember, quality calories count, so even if you're sitting, find yourself something good to eat, feed your body right, and when you get up, you got to get it done. Uh. Uh. Uh.